And we're now on chapter 9, Nine Gifts of the Holy Spirit to Find and Examine. You may recall that we uh, started into chapter 9 last week, and I don't exactly know what happened, but it was kind of this Holy Ghost takeover, and I kind of ended up preaching a, kind of a very anointed stir us up. A couple of people actually said it was the best message they ever heard from me, but I never really got through the or outline in a very organized way. So what I've done is I've taken out all the stuff that was on the outline introductory from last week, which gave me more room to get to the material of what we're trying to accomplish here. And what we're trying to do is we're going to look at the nine gifts of the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to break them down into a, a very traditional categorization, three gifts, three groups of three each. I won't review much, but the whole point of this Employing God's Gifts series is that I want to see us grow in using various kinds of giftedness. And I want us, in order to do that, I want us to first be clear that there are different kinds of giftedness. So we, we went into great detail on 1 Corinthians 12, 4, 5, and 6, which you'll see in, as Roman numeral 2 in your outline. What Larry just read is Roman numeral 2 in your outline. Um, I've taken the liberty of uh, adding a number of Greek words uh, for those of you who know how to look those th up and and so forth. And uh, today we are really, uh, we, we kind of work backwards here in in, um, in uh, chapters two and three, we talked about how there are classifications and, and categories of gifts. In chapters four and five, we looked at what's called the gifts of motivation or the gifts of temperament, which are listed in verse six. And they pertain to God the Father and his creatorial capacity. We then looked at the seven, uh, we looked at New Testament office terms, and, such as the priesthood of all believers, and, and we looked at what priest means and, and some things like that. But then we looked at uh, the seven gifts of service for two weeks in chapter seven and eight, which come from our Lord Jesus Christ in his continuing capacity as the head of the body. He's the one who calls, sanctifies, equips, or, and, and uh, continues to work in, in producing uh, a body of Christ in every locality on the earth, the church. And so today we're, we're getting into the nine gifts of the Holy Spirit. We're going to define and examine them. And then chapters 10 and 11, the next couple weeks, we are going to look at, um, one, how to get started in moving in spiritual gifts in the church, and then in chapter 11, how to take the spiritual gifts outside the church in proclaiming the kingdom of God. And that's something that, you know, we've, we've got to, a, we have, by the grace of God, over a very difficult journey and long time, gotten to a place where I feel like we have kind of the foundation we need to start to do this. We'll have to be wise. I did a little series on spiritual warfare right in the middle of this series, and we'll have to walk in humility and holiness and learn how to walk in the light and not bring things to the light after the fact, but before the fact, and, and uh, you know, uh, hear one another. When uh, God uses your brother or sister or your wife or your husband to give you a warning, don't go that direction, don't do this. We're, we're going to have to mature if we're going to become fruitful. We're going to have to mature in specific sanctification and understand that there is a spiritual battle and we can't get knocked back every time we start to reach out in, in love and service and proclamation of the gospel. 
And uh, we've got to take the spiritual gifts to the proclamation of the gospel. Uh, frankly, that's what I got all stirred up about last week, and I can't go there, but 1 Corinthians 4.20, you know, Paul says, my, my speech and my proclamation were not in persuasive words of wisdom, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of man, but on the demonstration of the power of God. Um, any gospel that doesn't deliver from demons, any gospel that doesn't heal, any gospel that doesn't re regenerate and, and turn people completely around is not the gospel of the kingdom of God. It's a gospel that's somehow been neutered. It's been acclimated to the culture. It's had the power taken out of it or, or various problems. And we've spent a lot of time and a lot of years thinking about what has happened to the biblical gospel versus the American gospel. And that's something I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be teaching a, a series starting in January, about the middle of January. I'm waiting until the right state students. I'm, I'm planning to end this series the, week, the Sunday before the right state students come back. So I can start in on a series called The Gospel of the Kingdom. What on earth is or what on earth is the kingdom of God and what in this world is what in God's world is the kingdom of God is what I'm gonna call it. What on God's world is the kingdom of God? And uh, it's, it's gonna also be uh, titled, subtitled, What Does the Church Have to Do With It? I'm gonna get Tina Turner to to uh, do a theme song for it. What does the church have to do with it? So anyway, uh, bad humor, just no extra charge for that. Okay, so uh, let's get into this uh, nine gifts of the Spirit to find and examine today and then more of, more of a practical how to get started in them next week. But we have to know what they are. And the first thing I want to say is that they're, again, they're described and listed in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, especially verses 7 through 11. And... Um, Larry read them to us. New Testament gifts, I just want to remind us, are always descriptive, not prescriptive. So one of the mistakes we can make is saying, oh, we've got to see prophecy happen this way, or we've got to see words of wisdom happen this way, or whatever. God is a very creative God. And in the Old Testament, you know, God took prophets and said, you know, lay on your side naked for seven years. And at the end of seven years, and he... He said, turn over, you know, I mean, what, you know, so God is definitely creative. He called Hosea to marry a prostitute as a parable of what, of Israel's relationship to God. Now don't go out and do either of those things, but, uh, I'll put that under the concept that we have a better covenant, but, uh, don't do either of those things. But, uh, you know, God is, God is an amazing God. You know, Jesus made mud and stuck it in a guy's eyes. And Elijah told uh, Naaman the Syrian to go dip himself in the Jordan seven times. Why not five? Why not nine? I don't know. <laughs> you know, um, so, you know, as we get into these, understand that we're describing things the Holy Spirit does, but we're not prescribing how he should have to do them. Okay. Now, again, uh, the words charismatic, charismatas, are, are, is uh, up there, and the word phonerosis is, is uh, up there in verse um, 6, I think, and uh, 7. So that, the, the word phonerosis means manifestation or demonstration. You cannot see a spirit. God is a spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. But Jesus made clear in John 3 that you can see the effect of the spirit 
uh, like you can with the wind in the moving of the leaves of the trees. If God's spirit is among us, there should be manifestations of his spirit that that even the natural senses can discern, even unbelievers can know. So let's with that, let's get into a lot of people use this classification that I'm going to do, and they the dividing the gifts into three groups of three. The first three are the word gifts, sometimes called the voice piece or the mouthpiece of God, uh, the discernment gifts, the eyes of God, and uh, the uh, the power gifts, which are sometimes referred to as the hands of God. So in referring to the uh, the voice of God, I want to say that the word gifts, especially prophecy, should be the most exercised among Christians. In fact, it is not normal as a Christian that is baptized in the Holy Spirit to not prophesy. 1 Corinthians 14 actually says you can all prophesy one by one. So it is not normal to not prophesy. In Acts 19.6, when, when uh, pa- Paul encounters in Ephesus 12 men who he thinks are Christian disciples, upon asking them if they received the Holy Spirit when they believed, which it means you can not receive the Holy Spirit when you believe, at least in some biblical sense, which is really the baptism in the Spirit. Many a, many a born-again Christian has received the Holy Spirit but not, been, not had a greater release of the Holy Spirit called the baptism in the Spirit. And, you know, if you are willing to uh, be open-minded, I, you know, I will take you through... Um, you know, a four-part study that I, I've done that's very detailed and very thorough that shows that in great detail. But Paul, uh, after he lays his hands on them, it says they all spoke in tongues and they prophesied. Prophecy is not some spirit mark of spiritual maturity. As we often say, getting baptized in the Spirit, getting a prayer language to speak in tongues is not a mark of maturity. It's just a mark of thirstiness. Some groups have called it the full gospel and made it some kind of mark. Uh, I don't know, very few groups state this, but there's sometimes a subtle implication, maybe you might say, that, uh, that this is some mark of having arrived at some level of maturity. It's not. It's a tool of grace to help us grow into maturity. It's no, you know, just because you have a cooler Bible than someone else in the pew next to you doesn't mean you're more spiritually mature, right? And it's not even who can quote the most verses, but it's really who, who has the character and humility of the, of the living Word of God, Christ. Uh, and we, of course, know that the written Word of God can help us develop that. So, again, uh, spiritual gifts, it's interesting that Saul, in 1 Samuel 10, it, uh, Samuel tells Saul, that you're going to encounter a group of prophets, and when you do, you're, you're, they're going to pray for you. You're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and you're going to be turned into another man. Now, there are people who say that getting baptized in the Holy Spirit is, is a New Testament phenomenon of being filled with the Holy Spirit, and it is definitely with the get release of tongues and the interpretation of tongues. But it, it, they'll say that in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon people well, that really doesn't bear out the scriptural words. Clearly, the baptism in the Spirit in the New Testament is some much greater experience of the Holy Spirit encountered by a greater 
more widely distributed among God's people, in fact, intended for everyone. But the Holy Spirit did fill some people in the Old Testament. It was not as widely distributed, nor uh, did it have the implications of tongues and interpretation and, and the frequency of gifts, but it still, the Holy Spirit still did fill people. And when Saul was filled, two things are said about him. One, he was changed into another man. Getting baptized in the Spirit should actually empower you to be another, a completely different kind of person. In fact, Paul says to the Corinthians, he seems to be astounded that they're walking still like mere men, that they, that they seem like normal people on a natural level, that they're not walking in the power of the Holy Spirit on a regular basis and the fruit of the Holy Spirit on a regular basis. Paul seems to be somewhat astounded by that. And then the second thing that happens to Saul is he prophesies. Now, Saul is not any mature Christian, nor is there much indication that he had any deep relationship with God before that. And prophecy is not necessarily a mark of maturity. It's a gift that's used to, to build fruit. And even baby Christians can and should prophesy. Interestingly, uh, if you'll read the next few chapters in Samuel, side note, I guess, is that Samuel or Saul makes several very wise decisions that could only have been made by the wisdom of the Holy Spirit before he starts his downfall in chapter 13. In chapters 10, 11, and 12, he makes several very wise decisions that you're, you, as a reader, you go, wow, that was really wisdom. Uh, then, of course, in verse 13, or in chapter 13, when he disobeys Samuel, his, his downfall begins. So, Let's get into these tongues. comes from the Greek word glossa, or glossa, but uh, usually it should be pronounced glossa, but you hear a lot of people talk about glossolalia, which is a uh, name given to, to the prayer language of speaking in tongues. It clearly has two scriptural purposes. Now, this is important to understand. There's no signpost that says, hey, these are the two purposes. So you really have to read all the verses about tongues in their con on their context. The first purpose, uh, it, uh, and there, there are verses you can look at, 1 Corinthians 14. We're going to look at verses 2 through 4, but you can also look at verses 14. Really, I put 14 and 15 there, but I should have put 14 through 15 through 17. I do have 17 there, good. Jude 20, you can look at, Ephesians 6, 18, and Romans 8, 26. Um, maybe I'll just say those verses real quick. First, 1 Corinthians uh, 14, 14 says, when I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I will both pray with the spirit and I will pray with my mind also. I will sing with the spirit and I will sing with my mind also. So he's defining uh, speaking in tongues as praying in, your, in the spirit or with your spirit. And he says, I'm going to do both. I'm going to sing in tongues and I'm going to sing in, in my own language and with my mind. I'm going to pray in tongues, and I'm going to pray in my known language. In verse 17, he says, if you do this in a public assembly, you're giving thanks well enough, but maybe others might not be edified if they're not, if they're not baptized in the Spirit or so forth. So there's some dilemma as to how uh, tongues should be used in the public assembly. Now, um, the Jude 20 says, mighty beloved, building up your faith, uh, praying in the Holy Spirit. And it the scripture interprets the scripture, and Paul has always is already defined in 1 Corinthians 14, 14, and 15, that praying in the Holy Spirit is not just being led by the Spirit in your known language. Uh, 
but it's a, a supernatural ability to pray in unknown tongues. Ephesians 6.18, Paul says to pray at all times in the spirit, in the context of Ephesians 6.10 through 20, which is all about spiritual warfare. I often tell people, if you will let the Holy Spirit trust him as you're praying in tongues, set the tone of your prayer, uh, you will find that sometimes you are praying in a praise kind of way. Sometimes you'll be praying in a very uh, commanding spiritual warfare kind of way. Sometimes you'll be praying in a, in a deep, empathetic, uh, intercessory way. Romans 8.26 says that, that we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit helps our prayers with groanings too deep for words. Now, I am not saying that Spirit-led prayers cannot be... The Spirit cannot anoint you to understand a general burden of what you should be praying in the language you know, so that in some cases you know uh, approximately what the Holy Spirit wants you to pray for. Uh, in fact, the Bible says that one who speaks in tongues should pray that he might interpret. And interpretation is not a translation, so you're not, it's not a word-for-word -word translation. It's like a dynamics equivalence inter interpretation uh, where you uh, un, where you sense the the essence of what the Holy Spirit has you praying. So I'm not saying the Spirit-led prayers cannot be in, the, in a language known, but I am saying that they, they also must include, by biblical definition, praying in unknown languages that God is giving you. And God does that because you are hopelessly finite. We are so clouded with sin that it's beyond our imagination. And that's the source of many of our conflicts with each other and so forth. But hear this very, hear this deep, hear this clear. Make, make sure you're clear on this, I, I should say. Richard Nixon, I want to be very clear about this. Um, we would have conflict and we would need the gift of tongues to pray if we had no sin nature, because we're finite. Now, we don't know if Jesus spoke in tongues or didn't speak in tongues, but he limited himself as a man, and it's clear that he was born of the Holy Spirit. There was never a time when he wasn't filled with the Holy Spirit. Yet, the Holy Spirit came on him in some different dimension, clearly, at John's baptism. And he was clearly led by the Spirit into the wilderness to go through a process of testing and brokenness until he learned obedience by the things he suffered and so forth and came out in the power of the Spirit. If even our Lord went through that, as who is our model and example, how much more do we need to go through that? Now, 1 Corinthians 2, uh, 14, 2 through 4 is really important. Uh, verse 1, of course, he says, um, to pursue earnestly spiritual gifts, my problem with what's developed, there used to be the cessationist viewpoint, and the, uh, and the, um, which there are still some pockets of cessationists, but they're very few and far between. Uh, great, big, there's, a, uh, won't, go, won't go there. Uh, there's still some, uh, sadly. But for the most part, most people in America have become something in between cessationists and, and actively pursuing the gifts of the Spirit that was at one time called the third wave. I don't think you hear that term around very much anymore, but in the 80s, 90s you did. And that's the idea that we believe the Spirit is active for today. However, we don't see that happen very much. We don't pursue it. We don't talk about it. We don't think we should focus on that. 
And in fact, there's kind of the implication that that would be wrong. If God wants to do that, but the problem is the Bible says, in a very active, aggressive word, pursue earnestly spiritual gifts. Pursue love and desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Then verse 2, for one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands. But in his spirit, uh, the his there is provided by the translator, that's why it's in italics, but in their spirit, in the person's spirit, in your in spirit, he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for three reasons, edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. One who prophesies edifies the church. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that the, he may interpret. And then it's uh, later in the chapter, it says tongues is actually a sign for unbelievers. You will actually hear over and over again, oh, we should not allow speaking in tongues in, in public assemblies. Uh, we'll address that in a second here. I think that's a matter of what you're trying to accomplish with the meeting. And that's something for the elders of the church to, to discuss and dialogue and other leaders to give input on. But in a mat, it depends on what you're trying to accomplish with what meeting. So um, when you speak in tongues, you don't speak to men, but you speak to God. There is actually a school of thought on the on these on tongues and interpretation that prophecy is a, mem, a message from God to the people, whereas tongues and interpretation tongues should be a message from uh, via the Holy Spirit through our spirit, but a prayer to God, a prayer of intercession, or a prayer of praise, or or worship, and so forth. Um, in other words, that the message of, uh, should be interpreted as a as something that God puts in our spirit of praise or or intercessory prayer toward God. Now, um, when it says one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, one who prophesies edifies the church, that leads into a whole thing that part of the whole chapter is about. If you're going to understand 1 Corinthians 14 right, you need to understand this, that verses 1 and then the last two verses are kind of like uh, a matrix or an interpretive principle, a hem of the garment to filter everything in the chapter through. So, the, you know, he starts the chapter by saying, desire earnestly spiritual gifts. At the end of the chapter, he says, do not forbid to speak in tongues, but let everything be done in a reasonable and orderly manner. And uh, we're going to look at that uh, in more detail next week. In general, it's simply this. The word edify is the Greek word oika demeo. And we get domestic from that, domestic means, you know, your house. Oiko means to build it up. So he's saying the one who speaks in tongues builds up their spirit, their spiritual house. The, the residence of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit within you is being is under construction. Uh, maybe, relay, you know, strengthening the foundation, what have you. Paint job, a little remodeling, uh, what have you. But the one who prophesies does the same thing for the church. Now, if you study this all out biblically, you, there's, there's a reason Jesus says to love others as you love yourself. He's not talking about our narcissistic culture of self-love. He's not talking about taking selfies and, uh, and putting them on the Internet so everyone can see how handsome you are. Uh, he's, uh, 
he's talking about there is a proper by under God by the Holy Spirit through the Scriptures, uh, through the with with healthiness relating to yourself in terms of stewardship of your health and building up your spirit and your knowledge and so forth, so that you can love more effectively. It's one thing to have compassion. It's another thing to say, in the name of Jesus Christ, be healed. And have the authority by the, by the power of the Holy Spirit to do it. It's one thing to feel empathy. It's another thing to know how to counsel in such a way that it builds character. There is a proper development of yourself that is actually a necessary stepping stone into actually loving people. Without that, it's just, it's just humanistic, irresponsible sentimentality that can sometimes even get weird and demonic. You need to have God give you everything you can. Study, building up your spirit. There's a place for speaking in tongues to build up your spirit. I speak in tongues quite regularly. I would not want to minister without that, especially for what we've encountered at Wright State this year. In that, uh, you know, we've had a couple brothers on fire and sensitive to the spirit and a couple young ladies uh, come in that are like that. But vast majority of people that are coming are natural minded, more religious than that, than reality in terms of whether they actually know the Lord, no doctrine of, of the attributes of God, no understanding of the place of the commandments. No, they've never read the scriptures. They have never encountered God in a manifest way. They know some, some very confused things about God having been brought up in church, but they have never experienced God. And it is very dry going through the scriptures with them. And I have, to, I have to be as empowered by the Holy Spirit to go to those meetings as possible. So, you know, there's even been a couple times when I or some others in our church have fasted for me in those meetings where I've had some breakthrough after those fastings. We live in a time, 1 Corinthians 2 is a whole chapter. If you haven't studied 1 Corinthians 2, it's a whole chapter. It's a whole chapter about being, how the natural-minded person cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God, and we are living right there. That is the essence of Western culture since the Enlightenment. And there are many, you know, Ephesians 5, Paul says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. There are many a person who would never be drunk with wine that would never either be filled with the Holy Spirit. So, now, there are times here, you know, here's my thought on whether you should speak in tongues in a public gathering or not. First of all, it depends on who's there, what it's for, in what part of the meeting it is. I have seen, every church I've seen that has said, no, we shouldn't speak in tongues at all in public, it should only be doing, done in private, has lost the spiritual gifts gradually over the next few years, per, period. And I know many firsthand accounts of churches that have gone that route. I don't think you should just speak in tongues all over the place all the time. Here's what I think. 
When we're worshiping on Friday nights or Sunday mornings, it is fine to speak in tongues as part of the worship. We are entering the presence of God. We are building ourselves up. He is enthroned upon the praises of his people, and we are drawing near Ecclesiastes 5 to listen rather than offer the sacrifice of fools. But at the end of the, uh, of the um, worship, we are drawing near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. And so what we do is we listen to the Holy Spirit. Having, But you can't listen unless you've spent some time being filled with the Holy Spirit, right, and being edified. And, we, and you need uh, to grow in discernment to hear all kinds of spirits and all that kind of stuff and which spirit you're really hearing and that sort of thing. Now, um, so what I, we'll, we'll go into this again maybe a little bit more next week, but uh, it just depends on the timing of the meaning and the purpose of the meaning. What Paul says at the end of the chapter is don't forbid to speak in tongues. Uh, desire earnestly to prophesy, but let everything be done in a reasonable and orderly manner. And that's why we have leadership. Um, I was part of a church that was called Dayton New Covenant Church. Was a, uh, Larry was part of that church, of course, and Catherine. And, uh, you know, it's still uh, called Christ Our King, and it runs Dominion Academy today. But during those days, it was a very charismatically oriented church. And we used to not have gifts of the Spirit at our campus ministry meetings. We told people, don't speak in tongues, even during the worship. Uh, you can lift your hands, you can clap, you can move around a little in worship, but don't, don't prophesy, don't speak in tongues, uh, because we, it was an evangelistically-oriented meeting that we were reaching out to unbelievers and ungifted, and we basically didn't invite them to our Friday night worship or our Sunday morning worship until they'd heard more about the Holy Spirit. Now, that kind of strategy is a fine strategy, but I, I do not want to be, we will never become a, a church that says don't speak in tongues at public meetings all the time. Uh, I would like to see as many of that, those kind of things be done in prayer meetings and Friday night worship and things like that as possible. Even in terms of prophecy, uh, what we try to do on Sunday morning is there's there's been a, there's a few kind of more mature brothers and sisters that have been cleared uh, by the elders behind the scene and encouraged to prophesy. But I don't want everyone just prophesying on Sunday mornings. But I want everyone prophesying on Friday nights and in small prayer meetings. I've been I hope you'll do this with me this year. I've been having some small prayer meetings, uh, but please, you know, uh, for instance, you know that uh, Davion and. John Gray, they live near each other. Have a prayer meeting, what, whatever. The, the, uh, there's a brother named Corey Knapp that's moved into the Red House, and part of the reason I uh, encouraged a brother from another church to move in is I knew that he'd start some prayer meetings there, which he has, and I asked him to. So we need to pray. We need to worship. We need, and we need to have spirit-filled prayer meetings, and part of that needs to be speaking in tongues to build ourselves up in the things of the Spirit. But from there, there needs to be words of wisdom, words of knowledge, prophecy. You can't move in the ministry of casting out demons or any of those kinds of ministries without words of knowledge or discernment of spirits or both. It just can't be done. All right, so let's, uh, speaking in tongues is basically um, two purposes, personal 
or corporate edification, but then there's a place where you shouldn't speak in tongues, it says, unless uh, there's someone to interpret. Prophecy is foretelling. It means um, propheteus, the verb, verb or propheteo. 1 Corinthians 14, 3 and 4, but one who prophesies speaks to men for edification, exhortation, and consolation. Probably not going to get through all this today. It's okay if we go another week. One who speaks in the tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Now, there are levels of prophecy. Every Christian who gets baptized in the Spirit can begin to prophesy. Even We have a better covenant. Even in the Old Testament, people who were not baptized in the Spirit prophesied. And that should happen occasionally. Uh, you'll notice that of the nine gifts of the Spirit, seven of them happen regularly in the Old Testament. Even people who are not baptized in the Spirit can and should move in gifts of the Spirit. It's just that with the baptism in the Spirit, you receive uh, a prayer language, and, a, and a, there's kind of a, a filling of your Spirit. And once that happens, there's a capacity to move in, that, in the things of the Spirit more frequently, more often, more powerfully. But there are many people who do not get baptized in the Spirit. To it. They come to a certain level of anointing in the things of the Spirit in terms of, and, and it's felt in their preaching or other, other ways. Uh, that happened all through the Old Testament. A definition of prophecy is speaking forth under the supernatural inspiration or anointing of the Holy Spirit, a message from God for the purpose of edification or exhortation and consolation. I have here, be careful of corrective or directive prophecy. There are levels of prophet. There, there's, there, there are basically people who are new at prophesying. There are people who develop a regular ministry of prophecy that, that is accompanied by a certain level also of, of character and spiritual maturity and Bible knowledge. Those are the people we kind of re talk to behind the scenes. We encourage you to prophesy on Sunday mornings. Most of those people know who they are and uh, that sort of thing. But there's the office of a prophet. Now, there's no one in our church that really has that kind of a office. But the, the office of a prophet is uh, more likely to be used to bring a corrective or a directive prophecy. Be especially careful of what's called directive prophecy. Directive prophecy is something like, you shall go to Bangladesh and do this and this and this and this and this. It, generally, directive prophecy is only of God uh, if A, you know the purity and depth of the walk of the, the people who spoke it, and it's a confirmation to what God's already been working on with you. Look at Acts 13 as an example of that. Set apart Paul and Barnabas to the work I have called them. Paul knew from the day of his conversion that he was going to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Now it's 14 years later, and God says, set apart Paul and Barnabas to the work I have called them. They knew all along they were preparing for this. And it was more just a confirmation of now's the time, which I'm sure they were already starting to think, I think this is the time. So be careful. Directive prophecy can lead to people into being in weird bondage. You know, like you're supposed to marry Susie and major in polywogs at University of California. or you're, <laughs> Be careful of that kind of stuff. Um, Prophecy is not primarily for telling the future. Again, it's for edification, which means building up. Exhortation, which is kind of like, you can do it, get back in the race. John, John, he's our man. If he can't do it, nobody can. 
<laughs> no, just kidding. But uh, hopefully you won't do it that way. And uh, consolation, comfort. You know, I, my Christian life started with the death of my closest brother, and it was uh, a great comfort, the presence of the Holy Spirit, and several prophetic words uh, that came forth from people who were at the funeral and uh, were, were a great comfort to me. Again, uh, the word gifts should be most exercised gifts in corporate gatherings. Everyone can and should participate in the word gifts. They familiarize us with the anointing, help us to begin to obey God rather than fear man, and are often a stepping stone into the usefulness and other charismatic gifts. Uh, the Bible says you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and may be exhorted. In prophecy, when people are beginning in it, it needs to be very much like a little kid learning to walk. When a little kid learns to walk, they make a few steps, then they fall down. It's 100% of the cases. No kid has ever, like, taken his first few steps and said, okay, let me in the Olympic Games. <laughs> I'm ready to run the 100-yard dash. Uh, or I'm ready to be a ballroom dancer or something. You know, it's, it's a learning process where there's failure. And you don't, like... I knew if you started walking, you'd fall down, kid. You know, you brag on the kid, look, this kid walked. You know, of course, parents take it too far. Look, the kid walked one step and it's on Facebook and everything. What, it, you know, you're, I'd rather you erred in that direction than like, I knew you couldn't walk. And that, it's really kind of like that with, with stepping out in prophetic gifts. One of the, a very interesting experience I had one time in Bowling Green, Ohio, God gave me a prophecy about Noah. Uh, we, it was a church that was much more familiar with this kind of teaching, and and prophecies were much more common and regular at the end of the worship. And I was struggling with being afraid of what people thought of me. So I worked up the courage to obey God and start to prophesy, but a halfway through it, I stopped, and I couldn't go any further, and I sat down. And a very anointed brother who we still know named Ken Jenkins stood up and finished the prophecy exactly what I was supposed to say. And I was like, wow. I wasn't just like James Davis. I was I was like, wow. And uh, but I chickened out. But like God didn't go, yeah, you scaredy cat, what's the matter with you? You know, I just tried again later in the, in the next week or whatever. Does that make sense? You're going to have experiences like that when you step out in, in, in deliverance or any other kind of spiritual gifts. All right, let's see if we can get into the three discernment gifts a little bit. Boy, I wish I, wish I had a lot of more time to get through these. I'll probably have to go spill into next week, I guess. Some people say uh, the discernment gifts are being able to see things from God's perspective or the eyes of God. One is the word of wisdom, which is a supernatural insight in a particular situation, often a potentially explosive occasion where the Lord or his servant is on trial. Now, it's not always in a confrontational situation, but here are some examples of, a, again, a, a particular insight as to what you should do, not the same as a word of knowledge, as we'll see. Jesus and John 8, they thought they had him trapped because... If he said, stone her, they could take him to the Romans to be executed because the Jews were not allowed to execute anybody by the Roman law. But if, they, if he said, don't stone her, 
then he was abrogating the law of Moses is what, in which they were accusing of him because he wasn't agreeing with their interpretations of the law of Moses. They were already accusing him of that. So they thought, we've got this guy in a double bind he can't get out of. And he wrote on the ground. Some people speculate that he uh, wrote their sins. I don't know. I kind of like that one. It's kind of kind of bold, but uh, or ornery or whatever. I don't know. But uh, there's no evidence of what he wrote. But he did wait till he heard from the Holy Spirit what to say. And I, you have to admit, everyone, you just have to admit, no one of us would have came up with, well, who's ever without sin cast the first stone. None of us. That is supernatural. How do you come up with something like that? <laughs> from God, right? <laughs> you have to hear that from God. That was amazing. As they, you know, and, and they uh, began to leave. Um, Jesus with the taxes. Now, the Herodians and the Pharisees, interestingly, and they hated each other. They actually hated Jesus so much that, the, that they would never talk to each other, even respect each other, yet they got together to say, how can we use both of our particular paradigms of religion to, to get this guy? And they thought they had him again on the, do we pay taxes or not? Because if he said, don't pay taxes to Caesar, he's guilty of treason and he would be crucified. But if he said, pay taxes to Caesar, every Israelite would consider him a traitor, like they did the, the tax collectors. I love the one with Solomon and the, the, and the two harlot women that had babies. And the one, the one uh, I think I have the scripture reference for it somewhere in your notes there. Um, but yeah, first Kings chapter three, uh, what somebody looked that up and at the end, it's interesting because, uh, they saw that the wisdom of God was on Solomon. It says at the end, we all know the story. I hope that he says, okay, just cut the baby in half. And of course the, the woman whose baby it was not said, yeah, no one should get the baby then. And the woman whose baby it really was said, oh, no, don't do that. She can have the baby. She can have the baby. And then Solomon discerned that's really the woman's mother. Amazing. I would have never thought of that in a million years. Not even a billion. Uh, not that I would ever exaggerate. Uh, you know, who can think of and, and it's interesting that the, it's interesting that when the story spread among the people of Israel, they didn't say, hey, this guy has a lot of wisdom. But they said he has the wisdom of God upon him. They understood this was a spiritual Holy Spirit wisdom. This was a special kind of wisdom that's beyond man's wisdom. So, uh, word of knowledge. I, I think I've shared the testimony of sharing with Anwar enough times, but you know he was going to beat me up the first night I shared the gospel with him, and he was coming across my desk to pound me, and he was very angry. And I, I just had this anointing where I didn't, I wasn't afraid or anything. I just humbly just said, I'm sorry that we Christians have done such a bad job of demonstrating Jesus to you that you think Muslims shoot Christians and Christians shoot Muslims. I'm really sorry that I'm not a very good Christian and we're not very good Christians. But if you would be open-minded enough to look at the Jesus of the Bible, you'll be impressed enough that you'll fall down and worship him. And he said, I'll do that. And he didn't beat me up. <laughs> Thank the Lord.
And believe me, he was a little guy, but I'm pretty sure he could take me, uh, if you have to know him. But I'm pretty sure he would have done some damage. And, uh, and I was cornered, and I wasn't that fast to begin with. I don't know if I could have got away. So thank God for the Holy Spirit giving you it. It, this, it was not my normal kind of not wisdom, nor demeanor, nor anything. It's the first time I ever, I've used that same approach since then a number of times, but that was the first time I ever used it. Uh, words of knowledge is a supernatural, transrational impartation of specific information that one could not have attained by natural means. It's often used in conjunction with gifts of healings or ministries of deliverance and used as a platform to impart faith to the recipients. That is very important. Names of diseases, names of demon spirits, it's very important in the deliverance process. It helps the deliver person being delivered have faith of what God's doing. Because often when you name the spirit, they'll just, they'll know in their knower, oh man, that's something that's controlled my life. Now, examples, Jesus with the woman at the well, he tells her specific things about herself. You've had five husbands up till now and so forth. And, and she's like, uh, gee, I perceive you're a prophet. <laughs> and uh, um, Zacchaeus in Luke 9, 1 through 10, he climbs up in the tree. God is already drawing Zacchaeus. G Jesus, remember, Philippians 2 tells us he doesn't walk out of his omniscience or his deity. But by the Holy Spirit, in the middle of all this crowd, one guy, he goes, hey, Zacchaeus, he calls him by name and invites himself. Or he goes, today I'm going to eat lunch at your house. <laughs> he invites himself over for dinner. And uh, uh, don't try that unless you're really anointed of the Holy Spirit. But, <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, and, and his whole life has changed. Remember in Mark, I love Mark 9, where the disciples were arguing over who was the greatest. <laughs> kind of reminds me of the, the Kenyan guys when they were always fighting over that kind of stuff when they were in like uh, fifth through 10th grade and that kind of thing. Eric and Richard and Edwin, and they're always like fighting over who got the front seat and they have these little cut down wars about who was the smartest and, who, and everything. And uh, they were young, they were kids, All right. but I used to just chuckle. And, I, and then I, sometimes I'd even throw in, well, who's the greatest, <laughs> you know, just to, just to be fun, have fun with them. But uh, uh, it's interesting that when he says who's the greatest, they don't say what they were talking about. They weren't willing to come clean. Gives me some comfort. <laughs> uh, and he didn't wait for him to come clean. He just told him what they were doing. He launches into what, you know, the greatest will be the servant and so forth. And, and they're like, oh, I guess he knew anyway. All right. That's a, a word of knowledge. He knew, uh, it says that he, Jesus knew the Pharisees' thoughts. Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? In Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira, remember they lie to the, and Peter doesn't say you're lying to men. He goes, why did you lie to the Holy Spirit? Elijah uh, exposed the greed and the lie of his servant Gehazi. I love that one. Uh, well, we'll pick, up, we'll pick up on words of knowledge later. I'm looking up and I'm seeing there's like 28 after, so... Uh, 
let's start within seven minutes if we can. But we, I, I think what I'll do is we'll, I, I want us to really understand what the spiritual gifts are and how to move in them. So I'm going to pick up with defining them and giving examples next week. By the way, um, I'm going to try especially to throw in some examples of people I know that have moved in these things. Because I want not just biblical examples. I want you to see that if you will become a person who gives yourself to a process of being sanctified by the Holy Spirit and empowered by the Holy Spirit, sitting at you know Jesus' feet, listening to his word and studying the right things and so forth, God wants to do these things with us all the time. And it's, it's a must. It's not, a, it's not an option. It's the difference between a false uh, imaginary religiosity and a, and a true experience with God. These things should be happening uh, in your house. They, you know what? God did these things with the word of wisdom over and over again when I had a sales job. And I don't think I would have made very many sales without it because I wasn't by nature a good salesman. And, you know, I was the number two salesman out of 11 in a company for quite a few years. And I honestly am not that good at sales, and I never read any of the sales books. But the Lord helped me a lot of times with words of wisdom when I was talking to customers. So these, these things are practical and they're real.